Welcome to the Good Vibes Podcast with Clark M. Pistato and Ryan G. Nice. All right. Woo! We made it. <laughs> Holy right. shit. Our, our listeners don't know, but we've been uh, wrestling technology for the better part of an hour, I think. Holy snokes. China. <laughs> China. China. Yeah. We got the, the one uh, subscriber from China. I'm sure it's legit. Yep. They. <laughs> <laughs> He's a pissed off dude, man. He keeps fucking with us. <laughs> Definitely not from the government. I'm no. sure. <laughs> no, man. Well, I- I'm excited. We we got a great guest. A uh, little deja vu. Little deja vu. Yes, we do. We have uh, round two. A repeat uh, for our list. It's actually highly requested. So we yes. reached back out to our guest, and he was super stoked to come back on. And uh, and I promise I won't ruin this interview. I already gave a clue as to who it is. <laughs> But it, we, for those listening, you still play the drinking game. Every time you hear the name, oh. expect a shot or a sip. Yeah, yeah, it'll still it'll we're, be there. We're gonna make this. We're gonna make this a thing. It's gonna be a drinking game around the holidays. You know, you just, you just yell your relative the name, and you have to take a sip. Oh God, it's <laughs> you, awesome. You, you ready for this? Should we go? Yeah, let's just do it. Heck yeah, yeah, man. Let's let's jump in. All right, here we go. And. <laughs> Without further ado, everyone's sober. This is great. <laughs> and guess who we have, Clark? Hey, Hamidi. Hamidi! Major. Yes, Take a sip. Guys. Take what's a up? Sip. What's up? <laughs> Thank you for coming back for round two, brother. I, as I Anytime. promised you, I'm on my best behavior. Oh, you're doing great, bro. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> uh, but the funny thing is, we keep joking about it, Hamidi, is uh, it's turned into a drinking game because he said your name so many times. Yeah. yeah. It, it's like, take a shot. Hamidi. It was, huh? hey, it was hard to listen to that episode, but I had to man up and listen to it. And you guys did a great job. It was still yeah. a good episode, but it was it 100%. Great. You and Ryan just carried that one all the way into the end zone, man. How many? <laughs> How many? Appreciate you both. How many? Wait. How many? Yeah, tell How me many? About wait. It. wait. <laughs> tell me about it, man. Well, the good thing is, and the reason why we wanted to have you back, and by the way, it was highly requested that we have yes. you back. You're one yes, of our yeah. more popular episodes, and yes. I'm glad. Last time we just kind of talked about current events and stuff. We didn't talk about your story true, specifically, true. so I really want to. And the reason why I'm on my best behavior is your story is so amazing. I really want to dig into it and let our listeners uh, discover, you know, who yeah. you are and, and, and why you're so relevant to things that are going on and stuff. So, yeah, if you can kind of just, you know, and I apologize. I know you probably tell your story 50 times a week, but no worries. It's all good. You know, it's, it's been it's been a long time since I've been in a podcast. Uh, recently, I try to stay out of the podcast world just to kind of focus on myself and not to go back to, you know, where I was. But, you know, no matter no matter how far you can run away from this, you're always going to be back to it. You know, it's always going to be part of your life. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm so glad to be back. And I know that a lot of people reached out to me and told me that the last episode was amazing. And, you know, it was <laughs> it was uh a mix of uh, a Muslim uh, alcohol. It was great. <laughs> it was a little bit of everything. Something, you know, religious differences can learn from for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure your Muslim friends are like, that's why we don't drink. Look at that idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just made them look too good, man. Yeah. <laughs> 
that's awesome, man. Well, thank you uh, again anytime. for coming back, man. You're anytime. you're a true brother. I appreciate you, man. Anytime, anytime, guys. So yeah, let's just kind of take it from the top, and I just kind of want you to to freestyle it, man, and and just uh, you don't have to get too deep in one area, but I just want our yeah. a lot of our listeners were very curious as to they they loved you, they wanted to know more about you, and thank yeah. God we didn't uh, really talk about your story, and I didn't trample on it like I was last time. So now yeah. I, I will shut the hell up and let you just roll. No, with you it, you guys you guys ask me anything <laughs> you want, um, anything you guys want, I'll be happy to answer. Um, Awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's start with, uh, you know, again, you, you kind of touched on it <laughs> in the last episode, but let's let's start somewhere in the beginning where you're growing up in Iraq. And and again, what a difference and contrast of people growing up here in the United States or people growing up in other yeah. places of the world. So let's let's start there. You're young. You're growing up in Iraq. You know, yeah. what's going on and, and what are you doing? And, you know, let's start. You know, Iraq, man, I got to tell you, man, growing up in a country that is uh, inspired by communism, you know, like Saddam Hussein was a dictator that was inspired by Fidel Castro, by a lot of the communist leaders. Um, Pretty much you grew up in a country that follows communism and it was a dictatorship, a violent dictatorship. Perhaps it's one of the most violent um, uh, governments uh, over hi- the history of Iraq, it's it was Saddam's government. Um, our history is nice, is awesome in Iraq. However, we do have a bloody history that we don't talk about much. And, you know, many people don't realize or don't know that our last president, uh, Jalala Talabani, who was a Kurd, was our first president in our history to die out of natural cause. Mm. Because the wow. others died, yeah. either got shot, got hanged, or got pulled on on the street and just got beat the hell out of to death. That just gets to show you the history of the country. That, that the history of the country, there's many dictators came across uh, this country, but Saddam definitely was the one of the most vicious dictators that ever controlled Iraq. And you know, I I, I was a, a kid, maybe I didn't realize. What really was going on around you? Uh, how hard life was? Uh, you imagine Iraq was at war from 1980 all the, to this day. Iraq is still at war, from Iran war to the Gulf War to the recent war after 2003. You know that the, the people have went through rough time, man. And I can tell you, uh, going back to prior going to prison is when. I was living in Iraq during the 90s, during the sanctions, when Iraq was put under so many sanctions after the Gulf War, um, how tough life was, man. Uh, we were actually, I was talking to a friend of mine who was in my third cl- third grade class, who now lives in Arizona, joined the U.S. Army. And we were just talking about how rough these times were, man. Like, people uh, could not afford to eat three meals a day. Some people were able to afford a meal a day. Some people couldn't afford at all to eat. And they didn't know how to get food. Um, and, and I think a lot of Americans don't realize never been in this position at all. Um, and it's really was a tough life, man. And, and that kind of a time, that kind of times it create, and I'll say this, it create tough generation and also create a fucked up culture. Because what happens to people when people go hungry, they start stealing, they start destroying stuff. They started doing everything that's unethical. 
uh, to that culture. People in our culture should not be stealing, should not be. Um, but that beautiful culture, Saddam transferred it to a shit culture because of the environment and the times people were living. And, you know, I was a, a, a young kid, a 12 year old man walking out of my middle school and I got pulled by a police officer and it was a, a regime member. Um, and a regime members, there's something different about them, something that, uh, about their tone, about the way they dress. Um, because of that culture and that environment, people were trying to steal one another. So the police officer will stop you, try to see what's in your pocket that's of a value so they can take it. Uh, regime members try, everybody try to use their power to do something, to get something or to gain something extra than what they have so they can afford to eat. And at the time I had about 500 dinars, which absolutely equals nothing in American dollars, maybe five bucks or so. And um, he said, uh, you know, do you have any money in your pocket? And I said, no. And I walked, uh, kept walking away. And when he got out, he slapped me, uh, hit me down to the ground, searched me and found half of my money that was in my, in my wallet and slapped me so hard. I cursed him and I ended up going in a police car and with two guards on my side and it driven about 45 minutes to a compound inside of the Iraqi Ministry of Interior, which place that no normal citizens have ever seen. Uh, when I actually approached the Ministry of Interior uh, front gate, which is about eight miles away from the presidential or the classified buildings that back then, I have never seen that side of Baghdad before. And when they drove me through that checkpoint, I knew that um, I wasn't going to go home that day, that, that's, that, that this was it. And I still remember um, the car drove past the Ministry of Interior and went into a compound. And they called it the traveling compound and what it means traveling compound is means you either travel to another prison either you travel to god or the sky and you're dead um and a, a slide gate opened and i went inside and it was a common thing that what they do is if you did something or fought with them they can accuse you of charges they can say you were a revolutionary fighter who's trying to attack the government you were anti-government so my issue was not to give him my cash. So, and my thought is what, what else could he do right to me? They can beat me. They can put me in prison for a day or two. What he did, he went inside and he wrote a report and he wrote about almost um, a page, a full page report. And when he stated in that report that I was an anti-government revolutionary fighter <laughs> that is try to assassinate a police officer or a Ba'ath party member, which is like a party member while on duty. I mean, this is a serious charge. At 12 uh, years old. At 12 years old. Jeez. And the government doesn't look at you as a, as a child at that mm -hmm. point. At that point, the government treats you as an enemy of the state, someone who's dangerous to them, dangerous to their regime. And when he did that, I was brought inside of the room and I was given a pen and they said, sign. And I mm -hmm. went, you know, when I signed, um, they opened the prison door and they threw me inside. Um, and uh, within half an hour, I was taken to the torture room, which I talked about in the previous um, podcast. Mm -hmm. And what they do in these torture rooms is, is they assure that the confessions they wrote down, are you going to confess to them in front of an actual interrogator or investigator? So that way they can document it. And once they do that, you already signed on it. 
you go back and when you go to, to trial, you are actually the enemy of the state. You are a criminal or a, a traitor or you have committed a treason in the country and somehow you either go to uh, death or underground prison. And, and, and just the place that I went to, I still remember some of the people who were in that prison been there for years, like longer years. Some of them been there longer than I was alive. Um, you know, I was only 12. There are people who were in there for like 20 years, 25 years. They've been in there for a long time. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget one scene I saw in prison. It was a man who had no hair, was bald, and had a lighter in his hand. And he would light up the lighter and puts it around all his head. And I didn't really know what that means. And what it meant, it was the guy that went crazy because how hard they tortured him and beat him. And they hit you to the head. They they hit you with sticks and all kind of hoses and everything. They hang you upside down from your legs. And the guy went crazy. And they said that person came to this prison was a normal person. But he's not a normal person anymore and has lost his brain. And, you know, at, a, at that age, you look at these things, man, and you're lucky. And you'd be like, this could be me. I could age at this prison. I could be sure. this guy one day. Um, and, and the 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 so many things i can't forget from my prison time you know like i was it was a warehouse it wasn't like an american prison or right? that would be like a five star hotel sure um to it was a big warehouse concrete warehouse everybody was sleeping on the floor it had one bathroom to the left side and i still remember seeing the rats probably the size of a cat or maybe a chihuahua dog you know running through the prison and it I was so terrified to go to the bathroom Sure. and sat in there and the food, I would never forget the food, man. The food was water with warm chickpeas. So it was chickpeas that half cooked and they intentionally don't cook them. So they become hard. They're half hard. And what you do is literally you eat chickpeas who are raw chickpeas that was soaked in water. And they call that soup. They said mm. that's soup. Mm. And they give you bread, a piece of bread that is actually stronger than a rock. I could hit you with it in your head and open it up. And that's all you get. And you literally chewed on that piece of a bread that's stronger than a bone, like a dog. And to survive, to, because you're hungry and this is all you get. And on top of you being hit, you've been tortured, uh, doing everything every single day around uh, – between 4.30 and 5 o'clock in the morning, they'll wake you all up, make you all stand up, and count you. Um, count every prisoner that's in there. Um, and I still remember looking at the windows in the bathroom, looking to see, like, how, there's no way you can escape out of there. That place was an animal cage, man. Um, there is no way you could have gotten out. It took my family about a a week or so to put money together to give me out. So was the deal was the whole country was corrupted. People want to survive. So they, they kind of get corrupted so they can get money out of people. And they offered money to the director of the prison who either can submit my paperwork to the higher up. And that's where I can get killed or get put in underground prison, or they can take the report and smash it. And like, it never happened. Right. And it's literally buying your own life. So my family paid a sum of money to get me out. I ended up getting out of prison. And, and of course, 
the person that went into prison and the person that got out of prison was two different people. So you know that I bet. Yeah. Let's let's pause there for a second because yeah. you know let's do a little reality check. You're you're 12 years old. Okay, you're not even yeah. a fucking teenager, right? No, technically no, you're no. not. You're a kid. Um, and you're years you're old. A, and it, to add up, you are a skinny kid because you live and yeah. there's sanctions. Yeah, yeah. I it's mean, true. In, in yeah. here in the yeah. United States, twelve year old, you get in trouble, but you're going to detention. Here you are yeah. going to a prison, which is not even an American prison or juvenile hall. It's a const- concentration it's a camp. It's, it's yeah. a yeah. exactly. Yeah. So you know, you're twelve. You're not even a teenager. You're probably shitting yourself, full of fear. Yeah. How how did you survive that time? But did anyone take you under their wing? Like, how did you maneuver? Yeah, yeah. Indeed. The situation. Indeed. Uh, there was actually older prisoners who took about a day because they thought you were fighting with a group. Like, you wouldn't end up in that place if you weren't a bad guy. Uh, if you weren't a guy that did something against the government, and they realized at that point that I was just a child that ran to the wrong person. And um, perhaps when they pulled me out to the torture room the first time. Um, one of the prisoners tapped on my shoulders and said, um, scream as hard as you, you can so your voice bothered them or they would not let you go. Oh, and wow. I'll never oh, forget wow. that. I'll never forget those sentences, man. Like imagine mm. you're being pulled out and this is what someone steals you. Yeah. And you, you take a left side of that prison and there's a room the size of a bathroom painted all red with chains coming from the ceilings. Look like a butcher store. Mm. Uh, and these people were vicious, man, um, vicious, like no mercy. And do they know that you were absolutely just a kid and innocent? They do. They absolutely oh. do. But they, they convince themselves to live in that lie that you are an enemy of the state. And mm. somehow they have to prove to their superiors that we got a criminal off the road that is going to be against the government that's going to be due. And especially in a government like Saddam, where he told them, if someone is a one day old and he's against me, get rid of him, kill yeah. him. And mm. the, the, you know, for me at that point, when, when I was inside is to answer your question is I thought I was never going to get out of there. That was not, right. that's it. I was done. Um, I mean, when you see someone who's been there 25 to 30 years yeah. sitting there, no you trial, it's going to be you. Yeah. No trial, nothing. Mm. And turning on the lighter on his head because he's going nuts you absolutely think is going to be me. I'm probably going to age in this place. And, and that's, that's it. Well, this- and, and you started to really adapt into the environment. I think within three to four days, I actually became one of these guys. I became that in someone who I started to believe that I was anti-government. I started to believe I was the bad guy because um, they beat you to a point that they're going to make you believe you are a bad person. You are a criminal or an enemy of the state. And, when I came out, I, I will say uh, that that probably was the sh- biggest shift in my life, like the biggest I have ever had, man. I've been to like battle zones and war zones and the most dangerous spots in the world that Clark would know. And I, I never, I, nothing shocked me as much as that moment leaving out of that prison, because when I was even got taken out of that prison cell, I thought I was going to die because usually they take me to the left side. It's where I go. And that's time I got taken to the right side. So I said, if the left side was torture, the right side was definitely going to be worse than that. And, you know, I was taken uh, with uh, my eyes covered. My hands were handcuffed very strongly. Like literally my lower hands went numb because I couldn't feel how the handcuffs were like very tight. Mm. And, and um, 
was metal handcuffs because they didn't have zip ties up there. It was all metal handcuffs, the old style. And uh, my legs had chains and metal balls on them. Damn. Yeah. Like I couldn't, like for me to walk from one place to another, it was impossible. Like you're just pulling on, on metal balls. I mean, I was 12. I couldn't do anything. So when when you see that, you really feel like shit, you know? And, And by the way, when you said medieval, Actually, they bought a, an old Roman book. That's an old torture Roman book. And that is the technique oh. they implied on us. Oh, my God. That, that the technique was not just something they made up. They actually extracted that from an old torture Roman book. The Red Room, the chains, the yeah. everything that was taken. And uh, they were applying all these things. So I still remember the chains on my legs opened up. And I feel there's guards behind me. And I thought they would probably pull a gun and shoot me to the head. And, um, you know, usually you see an ambulance there, which basically to pick up the dead body. Or, and I just kind of like gave up on one of my knees. And, um, and um, the handcuffs opened. And uh, the guy removed my, so I don't see him. I don't look at him or see his face. He opened up my uh head cover my blindfold and he just said go and when the the slide gate opened i saw my dad oh shit and i just saw my dad and i and i didn't move actually i was scared you know i I didn't know and he just said go and don't turn around don't look around and i just walked straight man out of that place couldn't look at it until actually they closed this the slide gate when i went out and i looked at it one last time and um, I think the 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 shock that I was in that you just went into a nightmare, and all of a sudden you see yourself out of it, man. And it's just like part of you is always like, what about the people that's already inside? What what about them? What about the people that helped me? Uh, would I ever see them again? And I never saw these people again. Never. I was in Baghdad for five years patrolling every single day, man. Wish I could have ran one of these like people who are inside of the prison. So I don't know where their destiny was. I don't know if they were executed, killed, whatever happened, happened to them. And uh, I, when I left there, you know, um, I don't know, man. I, when I left there, I was left a different person. Um, well, you did. You had to grow up in many ways very quickly anyway. in a harsh environment, man. And, you know, since then. You were no longer a boy when you got no, out. I promise you're, that. You're, you're longer a boy. You are a prisoner. And. When I got out, I went from being an A student to an F student. I mm. lost interest in all school. I didn't mm-hmm. care about anything. I knew that if I had done anything, anything, I would not be able to make it again. Mm. So I had to avoid people. I had to carry money, some of cash in my pocket that if anybody stops me again, for whatever reason, I have to take that cash and offer it to him. And whatever they want to do to you, you just you yeah. can't say anything. So I, I, I went out. And I didn't do a thing, man. I stayed home. I didn't have any friends. I didn't care for anything until um, Saddam fell in 2003. And I opened my American and my, my, my front door and there was an American soldier standing there. And that was the table turn. I call it the table turn that that was really where you turn to be the good guy and they turn to be the bad guys. You turn to be the power and they turn to be the fugitives. Mm-hmm. And that that American soldier that was in front of my house, truly what that was the table turn for me. That was the turner of that table is that immediately right after that 
day, I joined the racket military. I was one of the first soldier number 19 that joined the racket military. Um, I faked an ID. I was 17. I needed to be 18 to get in. I faked my ID to get in. And um, when I joined the racket military, I mean, imagine a country that has been at war since 1970. And a country that had a mandatory military service and Saddam had just failed. Nobody had interest to be in the military, bro. Nobody. There was about five people on the line. I was number five. And we were probably the most hopeless five people in the country. Like for you to go try to join the military to fight against almost the whole country that's going to fight you. And I still remember, man, like going in, I tried my best to get in because this was like the change for me. This was the equal fight that I wanted against this regime is I wanted to able to have a gun and they have a gun and I can fight for my freedom. But before I didn't have any of that, I didn't have a gun. I was getting tortured and beaten and everything. And everything for me was to actually get through the MEP station, get checked and be shipped to the Northern side of Iraq. And I did. And I made it and I went and I got trained by American Vietnam veterans, mostly were Marines, um, a company called MPRI, um, amazing company, actually, Uh, probably one of the main reasons for any success we had in the recent battles in Iraq, that this company trained the best division ever, the only division in Iraq that is is called the QRF of all divisions. Um, They don't have an area of responsibility. They liberated Mosul recently in the recent fight against ISIS. Um, they established an amazing division. And when this company came in, they really noticed two things about us is that we were just out of sanctions. Most of us were not fed well, Mm. um, skinny. You can see our bones through our bodies. You can see our, uh, chest cages. And when they did, they contracted with a five-star restaurant in Iraq and it's called candles. I'll never forget that. It's called a Shamul. It's just candles. And, they actually insisted that we eat protein, like we eat things. And, you know, imagine an Iraqi soldier who lived uh, almost 13 years of sanctions, not able to afford to eat meat. Then all of a sudden you go to the DFAC and they're offering you two shish kebabs and any wow. much as, as much meat as you want. And, wow. and PT was twice a day. Um, going to the range was every other day. Uh, it was a proper infantry school that you can take anybody into. And we finished our training and we got sent to the Ambar province, which is the first campaign in 2004. That's when they pulled the army out of uh, Ambar and they put the Marines on the ground. We were the first to participate in the fight, get shipped in there. We didn't have any armored vehicles. We had just these all these large trucks that carried soldiers. And we actually got sent from Karakush, which is the northern side of Iraq, to Al-Ambar province, which is like the West. So it's hours and hours of traveling. And we engaged in our way, trying to get to Ambar province, we engaged against the Medi militias in Shela, Iraq, and Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Engage against them. We didn't even know at that point what the Medi militia was. <laughs> we didn't even know who they belonged to. You are inside of that training base. You don't know what the fuck's happening in the world. Yeah. And all you see is these Vietnam veterans telling you, dude, there is shit going on outside of this place. <laughs> you better be ready. You have no idea. And it was 2003, man. I mean, those, all these resistance groups were getting ready to, to reform themselves. The Ba'athists reformed themselves. The former Al-Fidayin 
form themselves to fight. And they got guns. They got all this ammo from the old Iraqi military, RPGs, explosives. So they, they came out. And they were, you know, ready. Uh, and when when you enter that basic training, uh, you didn't see anybody. You came out of it and you see a battle zone full of enemies. You, you don't even know what the name of they are. And I just remember we engaged in Shella in Baghdad. And I thought we were in Fallujah. Oh, shit. I thought we arrived in Fallujah. Mm-hmm. And then I was looking around. I was like, that's actually Baghdad. <laughs> we haven't been. To, we haven't gone into Fallujah yet. <laughs> Because I saw these people dressed in black. They were burning tires all over the road to make sure that our convoys don't go. So we get out of the trucks. We fuck shit up. We take the whole whole fucking town down. And we got back on the cars and continued to Ambar province. And when we got there, we participated for about 25 days in the fight. And then they said, we're pulling one brigade out. And you need to go to Baghdad. And when you're fighting in that side of the country, you don't know what the fuck's going on in Baghdad because you just left Baghdad with all the bad guys and what's happening. So they said, we need you guys to go to a place. It's called Haifa Street, which is the most dangerous two miles in the world. And they said, you guys have two jobs is you guys need to go and protect the Iraqi recruiting center where we can recruit many Iraqis to join the military. Uh, so we can take the pressure off of everybody and patrol Haifa Street, which is the biggest threat to the recruiting station. So when I got there, I was like, shit, you know, this is an amazing opportunity to be outside of the Umbar province. That desert is fucking miserable and you're fighting people door to door. But now you're going down to the city of Baghdad. And we went down, to, they took us to a place called Al Muthanna Airfield Base. And it was right outside of Haifa Street. And I got there and I was a platoon sergeant at the time. And they said, it's a 500 meter gate um the recruiting session the station for the iraqi military is there so when i got there i would never forget that it's my first time seeing concrete barriers that are broken in half and i just wonder i'm like why are the concrete 10 9 foot concrete barriers are buried in half so when i asked i found out that there are car bombs blowing up every morning in that gate and the line of the new recruits are on the outside. You're in the inside. And you got towers over you. And I still went in and I saw holes in the concrete buildings, like big giant holes. And I was just in there. I was like, what's these holes? These are probably from the war. And they're like, no, this was just last week. They RPGs flew into the wall. So the gate was pretty much, we called it in, in our time, the the Berliff line, which is it's a, a term from World War II uh, in Germany, in Berlin, it's a defensive line. So it's a line that you defended that was being attacked 24 hours. That what they did, perhaps within a week, I actually found out exactly the style they were attacking. Um, th- their style was send a suicide bomber or a car bomber in the morning when the line is all outside. Uh, their main goal was to discourage people from joining the Iraqi military, from being part of the fight. And they sent car bombs in the morning. They gave you a little time off in the afternoon. In the evening, they attack you with personnel because you shut down the gate, you shut everything down. And that is your time to relax from a very successful day. Mm. And you got your soldiers sleeping right behind the wall in their barracks and everything. 
So their thing, they knew that every time they attacked us personally at night, that we're all going to get out of the barracks, get dressed, go out to the front, and probably be up be up for 10 hours. Right. And then the next day starts, that's when the car bombs hit you. So what, what does that do to you psycholo- psychologically? Oh, yeah. Is that you, down, don't, you don't yeah. sleep, you don't, yeah. you're hungry, you don't have to think about eating, you're really just in, in the middle of this. And it got to a point is, I would get hit so multiple times, man. I almost died actually in the checkpoint. Um, that that the fight was insane. They would attack you with PKCs. They uh, perhaps I have about three towers, and at one of the attacks, there was a three PKC personnel attacking each tower. Not to include the individuals who are attacking my gate. So it'll be three people with PKCs attacking one guy. On a tower, Jeez. which he can't even put his head up to see who is shooting at him because there's three PKCs opening at him. Ugh. One goes on, one goes off, one goes on, one goes off. And truly, my towers were unfunctional, couldn't do a damn thing. They were just there. Um, and we have filled the towers with sandbags. Even though it was metal, we were afraid the PKC would make it through. So we filled it with sandbags. And... um I had a, an American first cav uh, squad with a Bradley that's in the back of the gate <clears throat> because the U.S. base was way in the back. It was about a mile and a half inside. So they were afraid if the Iraqis, we fall down, that somehow these people can continue to the U.S. base. And we were just right there behind the gate. That's where all my soldiers was. And um, I, w- I will never forget, man, they'll attack us around 7.010 in the evening every single day. Mm. And what I did, I actually shut down the gate, which was a metal gate, and I hit it with chains all around, and I locked it. And I knew it's too high of a T walls they can't cross. But I learned that they were not there to kill anybody or to really engage us in a fight. They were there to disturb us. Mm-hmm. So after a week, I figured out the best thing we do during that time is to really just lay down. And they'll just open fire on the walls. They'll shoot. They'll do whatever it is. We will do a small response at them. It got to a point we would not even shoot back. We will just shoot a flare in the, in the air. And once the light up, they fucking run away. <laughs> yeah. And it got to a point you were just like, you knew what their goal was. And I'm like, I know they're not trying to break into the base. Just wearing you guys down. Yeah. Right. It's trying to wear you down. And, yeah. and truly... We started like cursing them back as they're shooting. We started like talking to them from behind the wall and the gate, man. And imagine there is about 10 meters between you and your enemy. He can hear you and you can hear him. Damn. And they're trying to come in, break into it. And the fighters on Hyper Street were just a different level, different people. Most of them were um, members of uh, Saddam's intelligence, Saddam's special guards, the Republican guard. And they tried every single, every attempt they had is to make sure Iraqis are not fighting with American soldiers. Because for us, we can tell who they really are when we're patrolling their neighborhoods. For the Americans, it's a very tough thing to do. Hmm. Um, so they wanted to make sure that this doesn't, this doesn't happen. This doesn't continue. And their next move was, is they needed to broadcast something that would scare the rest of the nation from joining the Iraqi military. The car bombs and the attacks on the recruiting center was not enough. 
we were defending that recruiting center with everything. I had soldiers that lost their legs and car bombs. I got soldiers that died there right in the front. I had a suicide bomber that hit his detonator and did not blow up uh, at the, right at the line. So we always had two soldiers on the front that pretty much would be the first casualty uh, trying to check everybody in. And so I, what, what they did is they made a deal with the public transportation drivers. There was all these buses in Baghdad that picked up people. Most people didn't have cars, didn't own cars, as clerk would know that. So they would take public transportation to come there to apply for an application. Mostly it's kids between age of 18 years old to whatever. And what they figured is some of the drivers worked for them and they would drive the, the buses through Haifa Street. And what they did is they got about 25 of the new recruits who just filled an application, got them out of the bus in the middle of Haifa Street, killed them, executed them. Damn. And the guy who led that operation, his name was Said Hitchum. He was a former um, staff colonel, combat colonel, who was uh, trained in Russia back in the 80s and set up an ambush. And the ambush was not to kill the recruits. He knew that the recruits would not make a big deal when they died. So he decided to capture an Iraqi soldier in uniform, which is us. And there wasn't many of us. There was about literally about a hundred and something of us in there. Mm. They figured one way is how can we capture an Iraqi soldier in uniform? They had him on national TV. Then people will get discouraged psychologically from not being part of that. So I um, got an order from my commander at the time. And he said, uh, there is a 25 dead bodies in the end of Haifa Street, which you have to go through the Talil Square all the way around. And then he said, your job is to pick up these dead bodies, put them in the pickup trucks and take them to the morgue where their families can go pick them up. I mean, it sounds like an easy mission. When we went, me and my uh, platoon sergeant, went, uh, platoon uh, leader, who was a lieutenant at the time, 24-year-old, got in the trucks. And we talked about it. We said, we're just going to go pick up these bodies, put them in the truck and leave. As we drove through Talia Square, there was... Um, no sign of a human being in there. The place went silent. And when the place goes silent, mm-hmm. you know something is up. The ambush is coming. <laughs> and I still have the, the footage from the American soldiers who got us out of that ambush, how quiet that road was. Not a sign of a cat, not a sign of a mm-hmm. wild animal, nothing. It was just a quiet, man. It looked like people are gone. So we're driving, and imagine you're driving that one mile and a half, man. It's probably the longest one mile I'd have in your life. It's creepy, you, yeah. You're driving in, and the more you go in, is the more it's more difficult for you to get out. It's it's a very big high buildings. They were built by Polish company. They call them the Polish buildings, and they're apartment buildings. And you're going in between. There is no way you can take a left or right. It's either one way in and one way out. And we drove in, and they have placed the bodies right under the bridge. Uh, right by the Tigers River. And when you look at it, where the bodies were, it's a downhill. So you have to park your trucks. You go downhill. You have to walk downhill to get down under the bridge. And then if you get down, you're on the low ground. So once you saw that, you're kind of like, did they really carry all these bodies in there or did they just take them in there and shot them? And why here? 
and we parked our trucks on the top higher level. And the buildings were about maybe a hundred yards from you, man. That's all it was. It was a mosque and buildings in there. And we got down and our job was to take all these bodies and try to load them up the hill and load them up in the trucks because the trucks can't, the trucks can't go inside. And literally, as soon as we went in, we went in two, two squads that went in. Uh, one squad went to the right to give you protection. The squad went in. And the first RPG flew um, into one of our trucks. Uh, immediately, we lost about four trucks to RPGs. When I got out of that ambush after an hour and a half, I only had one truck left. Shit. Yeah. Every gunner and a driver that wasn't that truck died instantly because it was a pickup truck. When you hit the pickup truck with an RPG, it's finished. Done. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I actually have the video of, of the one truck that I had left that the Bradley had to step in it because there was none of us was functional enough to drive it. We were all shot. So 27 soldiers that fought in there, the total number of my soldiers. Um, there was only nine that left alive. Wow. Yeah. I lost contact with my lieutenant who was actually captured alive. Jeez. And when the fight ended, um, uh, which I have pictures of it. I have some of it in my, in my Instagram account too. Uh, the sniper hole that was shooting at us from a hundred yard away. It was about this big. And we actually knew where he was because he killed half of our soldiers. We were low ground above ground. You can't go anywhere. The only place you can get out is it's their side. It's the enemy in front of you. So, mm. so and, how many... and the, the back is the Tigers River and yeah. the bridge is above you. So there is, You're there screwed. is a, That's horrible. One, yeah. one ladder. It's a ladder that goes in like a snake to go up the bridge. We lost three guys trying to take high ground. Did you say 27 of you went in? Mm-hmm. Nine of you came back. So Nine, yeah. you're telling me two thirds of your yeah. group. I mean oh, yeah. that's that's crazy if you think about that. Yeah, that's yeah. It's, absolutely it, it, crazy. Um, Two thirds of a it, you know squad. the interest. The interesting part is, I wrote this in my book as a chapter. The QRF, the American QRF officer, uh, Jeff Morris, wrote his own book here. It's called Religion Rising. It talks in three chapters about how to break into the ambush. So Damn. when we got stuck inside, I got shot to the right eye here. My right eye was open. Um, so I had a grenade shrapnel on my knee, my left knee, and a great shrapnel here above my eye and my eyebrows. And I started switching to the left side. I started fighting with my left hand. I was a lefty originally, so this was not a problem for me. Um, and our only way was to prevent that sniper for a few seconds from his vision so we can get out. And, and we couldn't do it. Um, our um, lieutenant ran out of ammo and we got captured a lot. Whatever happened to him, did he? Uh, So I didn't know what happened to him until the first cav figured out how to break the ambush. The Iraqi units tried to come in with their QRF, but the QRF have over 16 guys to 17 that was injured trying to come to us. Because what they did, they broke in two groups. One group that about 150 of them that kept us down, tried to keep us busy to run us out of ammo and capture our lives. And another group that would shoot any QRF coming at you. So um, the captain, Iraqi captain that was on his way to, to, to help us out was shot three times in the back. Mm. 
Jeez. So his his last call was, I am so sorry you're on your own. I am shot three times to the bag. And he goes, everyone in my truck is shot. Damn. And turned around and couldn't make it through. So when Lieutenant Morris and his men who had a Bradley, they were a Bradley platoon, had about four Bradleys. Um, Jeff was already patrolling Hector Street. This was his area of responsibility. He already knew the place in and out. So when he saw the ambush, um, Lieutenant Colonel uh, McDowell, who was, who was the battalion commander, uh, Jeff actually sent two Bradleys, broke his Bradleys in half. Two Bradleys attempted to enter Hyfa Street to make them think he's trying to get in. But he wasn't trying to get in. He was just trying to keep him busy back and forth. There's actually videos of it, of them just keeping them busy but trying not to attempt. And you can see on the video, right in front of them, Hyfa Street is completely empty. Not, not a car, not a human being. And they're just getting resistance from behind the buildings. And two other Bradleys went to the other side from the back, which means they have to cross the Tigers River from another bridge and then come to the bridge from my behind me. Okay. So that puts them to the front line of the people that I'm facing. Uh, they had a, a gazelle helicopter that made it first, engaged the enemy, and then the Bradleys came in. And once they opened the, one, the, the, the 125 cannon on them, everybody went away. And that's actually when we were able to get up and see how many people we lost, what's had happened. And I couldn't see with my left eye because that's the only eye I was using to shoot. And I was being helped up the hill. And that's when I saw there was only one pickup truck left. And, you know, Lieutenant Morris and his men uh, said, uh, hey, what do you want to do with this? Um, I'm like, I can't drive it. So just step on it so they don't use it as a car bomb or anything. So they mm-hmm. stepped on it and right in there. Um, and when I got up the hill, I have heard them screaming from the right side. But I thought they were trying to attack. And all that screaming was when I got up, I saw the body of my lieutenant tied up to a traffic ball with no head. Oh, shit. And I cleaned my left eye just a bit and I saw the rank on the shoulders. It's how I distinguish it was his body because the body armor was taken off. No cavalry. There was just no, nothing. And you saw a body and I had a little bit of like a very blurry vision. So when I got close, I realized this was the body of my Lieutenant, a 24 year old who was actually a lawyer, um, went to law school and then became an officer and he was from Mosul originally, and uh, you saw the body, man, and, and, and you counted around, and every time I count, there was only nine of us left. And at that point, none of us was functional. We were evacuated out with medical uh, unit. Um, I went to Ibn Sina to the hospital to figure out what's going on with my shrapnel and everything. And at the, point, at the time, I remember you're sitting there shot with a grenade and shrapnels in your body. And they just give you water. And they said, drink water. Jeez. And, I, and he just looking at yourself, man. Like, and um, the, I went back to the unit. There was about 50% of the soldiers in that unit has quit their jobs. When I got back to the unit, to the base, people were walking out in civilian clothes. And I just sat there, man, um, sat there and, 
truly is a moment to sit. I sat on the barracks. I'll never forget. I sat on the, on the bed and I said, I got two options. Either I can go home and die because pe- these, these individuals or the enemy in my neighborhood or the bad guys in my neighborhood are going to own me again. Either I'm here and I'm going to die anyway. And I got up and I got called by my battalion commander and they gave us a uh, 50,000 dinner, which is like 40 bucks each for being shot. I got that and we put it all together. We gave it to the families of the, the soldiers that found because mm. we didn't care. Like, you, you, what would you do with the money, man? At yeah. 17, 18 years old, what you, there's nothing there, there is nothing you can do with the money. Yeah, for and sure gave the money away and it just became not about money or it just became personal. At that point, I got called by my commander. I was taken to the Iraqi ministry of defense and I was promoted by the Iraqi minister of defense. Hazem Shalan at the time said, um, I got promoted to a command sergeant major. So I went from a staff sergeant to a command sergeant major. And one day, and my sergeant major at the time ran took his clothes and left out, left out of the base. Um, I got promoted and I went back to give a brief to the soldiers that are left. And most of the soldiers that stayed were actually from the other side of the country. They didn't care about being threatened. Some of them were Kurds. Some of them were Shiite from the Basra area. And they didn't care about threats. Anybody threatening them, um, they stayed. Um, And I had to give a brief to people who are mostly shot, injured, mentally broken down, don't have enough firepower or equal firepower to the enemy. And somehow I have to give him a speech of encouragement that we're going to go back to Haifa Street. A little pep gonna, talk, yeah. And yeah, we're going to fuck shit up. Your Rocky uh-huh. moment. And, and truly... How many were left, do you think? of? You said there was like 100 of you or so after that whole thing went there down. There was, I, I will be honest, there was maybe about 45 guys in there. Damn. 45 wow. guys. I knew most of face. them, most of them injured. Like you said, mentally yeah, defeated, wounded. Like, yeah. I, I, the person talking to them was injured. My eye mm. was all patched my leg. I was limping. I was, and I just looked at them and I had two words, man, for them. And I looked at them and I said, look, I said, you might not know why you were fighting today. I said, neither I do. I said, but maybe 20 years from now, you'll find out why we're fighting. Mm, nice. And yeah. The next thing these soldiers said is, when are we going back? Nice. I said, we're going to go back in about three to four days. And we're going to take American soldiers with us. We're going to have the first cab join us. And this time, we are not going back with the same mentality. This time, we're going to go, and it's going to be a gangster fight. Mm. And we're not taking trucks with us. We're not stupid. Because we drove through the middle of the road. So we, the first cab brought in about almost a company of soldiers, plus us, and we drove all trucks. We did not go to Haifa Street with any trucks or Bradleys or anything, or Humvees. We got to Salhia, which is outside of Haifa Street, and we just walked. And they have a brought in ICDC from all over Baghdad, so that we had a couple thousand soldiers there on the ground, and we just went in, man, and... I remember we detained maybe a few, six or seven guys who were participating in the fight against us. Everybody else ran away. They had tunnels and they ran underground. And 
And I just remember going that day, man, it was just, uh, if, if you, we were about 45 of us that were part of that ambush. And if they were lucky, it's not to be caught by those 45 guys. Right. Because they could care less at that point who the hell is their leader is. Uh, they will execute anybody if they distinguish that person. If that person was shooting and killed their teammates, they will kill them. Um, and I remember there was a Sudanese guy, fighter, who has been arrested twice. And every time he goes to the, to the prison, the Iraqi police release him because they pay the police. And then oh, they release him. I bet, yeah. And they chased him through like 10-story building. They threw him from the top of the building. Good. Uh, huh? And um, <laughs> the soldiers came down. And the, the, I remember at the time the commander said, like, what happened? They said he committed suicide because we ran after him and he had nowhere to go. And he just jumped. Yeah. And, and the truth is, I was like. 99% that motherfucker didn't go. <laughs> well, like you said earlier, you guys are going in yeah. to do gangster shit, man. And that's part and, of warfare, man. Yeah. And a, one of the funny things away from all the painful things that we were going through at that time, you know, we had some funny shit that would come up in the middle because we were searching these buildings, one apartment at, at a time. And the Iraqi soldiers would just go up the building. And there was known to be some prostitutes. Um, apartments like oh, yeah. kind of suspicious apartments <laughs> and I had soldiers who were Kurds and I had soldiers from Basra the southern side of the country <laughs> and they come from a specific town in Basra that it is the most run down town uh, these are like the most gangsters thieves anything illegal <laughs> it's the that, Compton of Iraq <laughs> it's, so we, we call them the Snoop Dogs of Iraq like these, these are these, <laughs> These guys could care less. And truly, they were one of the most loyal fighters to me. You know, I had a great soldiers. But they cannot go to a fucking place or a raid or anything that I have done without stealing something, without confiscating <laughs> some person. And so almost half of my job was to fight and had other half was to make sure these guys are not stealing nobody or no furniture, no clothing, nothing. It's pirate style. Um, Hundred yeah. percent pirate style. <laughs> I still remember I had this little soldier. Um, he went up to search the building, and as they come down, it was a whole one platoon came down. One of the bitches came out of the balcony, starts screaming. And at the time in Iraq, this old cell phone that you know the old cell phone, mm -hmm. which just came out, man, like just came out in two thousand four. Iraqis never owned cell phones before, like regular cell phones, and. That was a big deal to have one of these like the cell candy phones. bar ones, right? It's like I think they're probably Nokia's is what Nokia, we had it is Nokia. Yeah. It was yeah, actually right. Nokia. So, yeah. It was all that Nokia shit. And that was a big deal that you own oh, cell yeah. phones. So she screamed, and my commander heard the voice, comes in. <laughs> so he goes, What happened, ma'am? And she goes, They stole. People were accusing the military of all kind of shit back then. They didn't like us. She said, They stole my cell phone. And I just looked little at it. Snoop and, snatch it. And I really looked at him. I was like, bitch, we didn't steal your cell phone. Like, we, we, we have no business in stealing cell phones. We're just looking for bad guys. <laughs> so we're arguing. And my commander goes, you know what? Line up the platoon. I lined up the platoon. Oh, shit. <laughs> and I just looked at them. And I said, motherfuckers, if you stole this shit, throw it away. Now, like, like tell me. I can tell her, like, 
I can figure it out. I can say we took it by mistake or we think, you know, <laughs> bad guys are using it, whatever. I said, just tell me. And they're like, no, we don't have it. I said, okay, good, you know. So my commander has a cell phone. So he takes it. He goes, well, what's your number? Oh, shit. <laughs> and my commander calls the phone. He calls it. And I... And the phone Fuck. rang in one of the fuckers' Kevlar. It was inside. <laughs> it in his helmet. <laughs> it was inside of the net. You know, the net inside of the Kevlar? Yeah, yeah. It was oh, right on shit. his head. And he had wore the Kevlar. And I just said, I just looked. I said, motherfucker, at least turn the shit off. He doesn't know how to turn it off. <laughs> he goes, I don't know how to turn that shit off. I know we're on one. So when he called us the number. The cell phone ring on his head. And all you <laughs> see this soldier fuck. looking left and right and going, what the fuck? I, I don't know how that got in there. <laughs> That's awesome. Shit. <laughs> and, uh, my, my commander just goes, he goes, you know what, man? He goes, God damn it. He goes, give her a cell phone bag. <laughs> so we gave, we gave him the cell phone. And he said, at this point, I don't need this motherfucker searching nobody. Just go back to the base. <laughs> That's Isn't awesome. that awesome? The camaraderie that happens even in like the toughest oh, bro, of times. I, I would never forget is when you hear the ringtone <laughs> of that old Nokia phone ringing and his Kevlar. And he's going like, what the fuck? I, I don't know what that shit is. I remember that. It's, it's a do 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 And I just opened my hand and I said, give me the cell phone, motherfucker. Motherfucker. Holy shit. How many? I want to ask you something. And I don't think God, there's probably a very small percent on this planet that experiences the fear society. Um, what you experience and what you grow up, and this is what's kind of hard to comprehend anyone uh, that looks at the scenario is, you know, when you're growing up like this, and like you said, you have to walk around with money or, you know, you don't know who to trust. You don't know who's going to yeah. rat you out. And, and everyone who's involved in this game has the same mentality because if they don't start behaving a certain way, then they yeah. risk get, getting you know killed or going to these killed concentration or, yeah. camps. Indeed. So it becomes so toxic where everyone's walking around with this fear, yeah. and you either play the game or you're going to be fucked. So you know, at what point did you see the transition of fear? If you ever saw the transition, where it's like you know what we let's go let's go be the warriors and take it to them. Versus walking around and having that fear. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it's like it was at a point that you were freeing yourself from that fear by fighting these individuals, by being there. I mean, to us, this was a bonus that we were fighting these people face to face with an equal fight, even though they had more firepower than we are. But it was our first time in our life giving them a response. We never gave him a response. We never be able to resist against them. And it came to a point in 2004, was it, was it going to be either us or them? Uh, either you're going to live and establish a country and live a free and have democracy. Either they're going to win and they're going to do it, which both of these things happen today in Iraq. The kids that we were fighting around that, my time, the kids who were growing up around our fight in 2004 are the same kids that stood up to the enemy today in a big, massive protest in Iraq, almost millions of them, and fearless and not being afraid is because they were not exposed 
to that fear that we lived in the 90s. They never mm-hmm. lived and seen that concentration camps and beating and everything. These guys were all born in 2003, 2002, 2004. And they grew up not being, regardless of how fucked up things was in Iraq, they grew up not being under that pressure because we kept that enemy busy fighting us. And actually, the war have created a beautiful generation in Iraq right now. All these young guys that are standing up, fearless, fighting against the Iranians and uh, fighting against the influence, fighting against the radicals. And that goes to show you, in 2017, Iraq was able to kick ISIS out of Mosul, liberate the country. Could Afghanistan do that? I mean, you must feel very yeah. proud about that. It's almost like the guys that fought, you know, World War Indeed. II de- defeated such an evil axis, and here you defeated you know, such. Not you know. just that. Not just that is is I got kids who joined my unit, that the unit that I fought on, reached out to me and said, "I joined because I heard stories about you. Yeah. I joined to fight because I heard of what you did, and that's probably the biggest pay I I ever had in my life." It's the biggest thing that I'm proud of, of all the things I have done, that this is the one thing that when I see these young kids were inspired by us. Your legacy. And, and it's, it's they join and now they're standing up. They're now taking the fight. They're now trying to do something like what my generation did. And the truth is they're doing more. In 2017, when they liberated Mosul, these kids went and put a one hell of a fight against the enemy and prove them to them that you are not going to sit in this land comfortable. And they're able to kick them out, liberate Mosul, uh, destroy them completely. I mean, look, these things will never happen in Afghanistan. Right. These people are different backgrounds, different religions, different things came all together and figured things out. And because my generation of people, we were from all over too. My soldiers were Kurds, Yazidis who are not Muslim, Shebek who are not Muslim, uh, Shia, Sunni, we didn't care. We were w- the one team against whoever. And the beautiful part yes. about us is we fought everyone. Mm-hmm. We fought the Shia, which is the Meta militia. We fought the Sunnis, who are the radicals. Uh, we fought uh, the Iranians' influence. We fought anybody. Mm-hmm. We were the guys were like, we were the law. And we were bringing this law that we were going to establish a constitution and democracy and do what we have to do. And, you know... It's different when you never had a constitution and you're fighting for it. Right. You had one. Yeah. You established one. It was written and done. And then you were fighting to make sure that constitution is applying and doing what it's supposed to do. And, and that's how my life went to the next fight. Is the next fight, I got called to be the command sergeant major for the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. And at that point, the bad guys have realized that the Americans were not as... Uh, inventable as they were. They thought Americans could know everything. Mm-hmm. Iraq didn't have a digital database. So they realized, oh, Americans wouldn't know what the hell's going on. So most of these terrorist groups started forming political parties because Iraq was not used to political parties and they started entering the Iraqi government. And that's where the U.S. intelligence recruited me in 2005 to work as an intelligent asset and to build a database of all the bad individuals who are among the Iraqi government. So you went from fighting the terrorists on the road, shooting one and one and one another, to almost you are fighting to know who are the terrorists that are being part of the political process. 
and how to eliminate them out and how to clean them out. And longest story short is I built over in the first year over 80 files of operatives who were from Iran, Al-Qaeda, all over the Iraq, um, being able to obtain their fingerprints, who they are, first names, last names, and tribal names, and every bit of information about them. And what that did is that helped the U.S. government know who they are dealing with. Um, that building was the equivalent of the Pentagon, which was extremely important. The most powerful position in the government at the time was the Ministry of Defense, the military, because it's the highest budget. It is the most powerful. It is the strongest power. So these terrorists figured out they can be the leadership of that military. They can figure out exactly where the weapons come from by just sending the right people into. So mm. that fight, intelligent-wise, it was one of the strongest fight out there. Uh, I mean, imagine I was in a building with 3,000 Iraqis, some of them working for the Iranians, some of them working for Al-Qaeda, some of them working for the Badr Corps, some of them working for the Naqshbandis. These are terrorist organizations you probably never heard of. Some of them working for the Mahdi Army, some of them working for the Mohammed's Army, and some who are the Islamic State of Iraq, who are now ISIS. They existed way back then in my time. And they were not Al-Qaeda, completely not Al-Qaeda. They were the Islamic State of Iraq. They got led by Zarqawi that following year in 2006 when he got airstrike. And these guys happened to be the most vicious. Uh, Al-Qaeda actually came number two in our list. Number one were the Islamic State operatives because their number one mission was to kill Americans. Nothing else they could care less about power or anything else. Um, and then you got Al-Qaeda second. And within two months, uh, the Iraqi government was getting divided like a cake. Uh, and somehow you find yourself that you are going to work for the bad guys because they're going to come and take that position. And we got a minister from Al-Ambar province, which is 99% of the people there were fighting against the Marine Corps. And... Um, you got a minister from an area where 1,200 Marines died. What do you think he's going to be? Uh, he is not going to be a good guy. And even if he's a good guy, the people who's going to come with him are not going to be good guys. So when he came in, he brought 200 men from his tribe. They're from Garma, Fallujah. And they acted as his security guards. Yeah, and it was all military-age males, dark elbows. These were fighters, man. And they were in your building with about 45 to 50 American advisors between the rank of a major to a full book colonel. And I can assure you, it was the first time in their life to see an American with a nine millimeter. They never seen an actual officer or someone who's not fully armed before. Mm -hmm. And the, the funniest thing for me was every time an, a U.S. advisor walked into the building from the green zone, to our building, the way they look at them. Because they never seen that American, an American that close before. And you notice the energy, you notice the way they looked at them, and you knew shit was going to go down in that building somehow. And my biggest fear was to get an American killed or kidnapped. That was the two things that I was told my job as an intelligent asset also was to evacuate the Americans. Every single day, every American leaves the building by four to go to the green zone to the left side, 
to the right side is the checkpoint where all the Iraqis leave. And there's only two to three Americans that stay in the Iraqi operations center, who is a liaison team, to brief General Betrayus or General Casey in the morning about the situation of the Iraqi military. Because the Iraqi military at the time would get decrease, lose people, and then we get increase. We'll get more people, more recruits. So our performance as units, we were going at our fourth division at that, at that time, establishing our fourth or sixth division. And we started establishing all these divisions and turning the ICDC into Iraqi military and trying to have an, a, a grasp of what's going on around you in the country. And I remember going into that operation center in the MOD. Every time you enter, you see troops in contact all over the country. And, and uh, these three Americans that worked in that building, was, their job was to collect the info. And my job was to evacuate these guys at any time. There's anything suspicious or anything. And there was an individual who was among this group that came from the Ambar province. His name was Sabah Delim. And Sabah was a thick mustache guy. The way he walked and talked sounds like an officer of some sort. He was former military. He didn't tell you what he was. In civilian clothes, carried guns. And one day he brought a truck that carries actually with the teeth in the front of it that lift T-walls. And my whole building is blocked and closed with T-walls. I have only two holes in that building. One is the checkpoint where the Iraqis leave. One is a little gate where the Americans go across to the green zone. And there's no way anybody can cross that 10-foot concrete barrier. And when he brought that truck, we immediately went and asked like, what that truck is about. They said, we're moving furniture for the minister's office. And yeah. at the time, the minister's office was fully furnished. Was all Saddam's furniture that was still in the building. We knew they could. They were not moving furniture, and we knew immediately that they would move that T wall to get one of their trucks out. the The thing about it is why these individuals were in the building. These were members of Al Qaeda who were fighting in the Ambar bombs. They found an in through the minister's nephew, who is also Al Qaeda uh, leader. Damn. That they told them there are so American officers walking in this building unarmed, maybe with a nine millimeter. And there are, it's not an American zone. It's not a U.S. soil. It's not mm -hmm. a U.S. base. And that they already established uh, government ID. They already established Iraqi Ministry of Defense ID cards. If they put an American in any of their cars and get out of that building, they would never be searched or stopped by any Iraqi checkpoints. Damn. They'll just fly through to where they come from. So this was a touchdown for them to find any American. And the, the mission was to pressure the Marines to pull out of the Ambar province by having an actual American soldier uh, kidnapped. So they kept an eye on this American colonel who was actually new in the country, had stayed in the building for four nights late. He did not leave after 4 p.m., was not part of the group that was supposed to be evacuated in case anything happened. Perhaps when they came in into the building at 11.15 at night, I immediately knew they were going to do something. So I didn't care what they were going to do. I said, once I get the Americans out, there's nothing there for them to do. Um, and when I evacuated the three Americans, three of my soldiers went up to the second floor and said, there's an American sitting uh, in the second floor and all the locks to the back of the building were broken. Um, and they were looking to get him in the back of a trunk. 
and drive him out. Uh, so I got to him before them and I got him out through the other side of the building. I knew the building exactly how it was mapped out. So I was able to disappear and get him out of the building. And I got him about halfway and I made them run. And at that point, he was the last American to evacuate the building. And they looked left and right. They searched in the bathrooms. And I immediately picked up my phone and called the American intelligence officer in charge, Colonel John Burke at the time, and said, uh, these are members of Al-Qaeda. They were just about to kidnap an American officer. Uh, you and all of your fellow advisors are, cannot be in my building. Uh, the next thing is going to be a firefight between me and them. So he immediately woke Gerald Casey up, the commander of U.S. troops in Iraq, and they gave an order for 72 hours. No Americans are allowed to go into the building. It was the first time the United States government and the United States military have to figure out how to operate with their enemy in the same building. Damn. And what kind of measures do they need to? There are actually pictures of all of them in Camp Phoenix, which is next to the green zone where they were coming from. All in one room. All of these advisors trying to figure out like how... <laughs> are we going to work with all these bad guys? Yeah. This is a different mission. And whether do we leave, then they take over the Iraqi military, or yeah. do we go back in and kick all these individuals out to make sure they don't get any position of power? Because every advisor is in one department. Some advisors were medical. Some advisors were communication. Some advisors were combat operations. Some advisors were... This was the infrastructure. And they spent 72 hours. During these 72 hours, I got a call from an intelligence officer named Jason Paler, who became a very successful intelligence officer in the U.S. Army and a counterterrorism agent. Um, called me, um, and he spoke fluent Arabic at the time. And he said, get out of the building. You're going to meet with an intelligence collection team at a secure location. Get in, the, get in the truck and don't let anybody see you. So I walked out of the MOD went to the green zone and three SUVs pulled in with people in civilian clothes on body armor, so which looked like contractors or um, Blackwater, similar to that. But it was a female that got out and there were no words when she got out. Uh, she got out and she just opened the back of the car. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, you know, like this is, doesn't look good. So I didn't know at that time. I was like, am I in trouble? Like what? The, what the hell is going on? And she said, get in. So I got in and the car drove and just drove and drove and drove inside of the green zone. And we went to a, a compound behind the embassy, which later on I found out it was a CIA um, compound. And I got taken into a room and had a table. Um, I sat and there was three chairs in front of me. The female sat down with two other males. Um, so she introduced herself as an intelligent officer from OGA. Uh, other person was an intelligent officer from the DIA. And the third guy was Marine Corps intelligence. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, why, why are you here? Marine Corps intelligence. And what, what it looked like is these were the intelligent agents that were operating in the Ambar province in Fallujah. When they saw this is going on, and these guys were from the Ambar province coming all the way up there, they flew immediately trying to figure out who these individuals are and where they come from because the city of Fallujah was evacuated from civilians. The battle between the Marines and them was just face-to-face -face and there was no leads. So they showed up 
And at a at a 19 year old command sergeant major who young and has no idea what the hell is going on in that war, I said, you know, they're in the building. If you want to go detain them, go ahead and detain them. Um, they're there. And they said, no, no, don't touch them. Don't talk to them. This is not what we want you to do. So she looked at me, the female, and said, do you want to work for us? And I just looked at her and I'm like, uh, I said, beside being in charge of the most dangerous building in the world, I don't know how many side jobs I can do. Uh, I said, work for you in what manner? Like, do you want me to go detain them? Do you? She said, no. All we want you to do is go back into the building. Get us any information on these individuals, who they are, where they come from. And is there a way you can get pictures of them and get any fingerprints, names, list of anything, addresses. And I figured at that point when she was talking that they made Iraqi MOD card. And I had access to the personal department where they make that card, where they get the scanning, where they fill the application. And there was actually I was not allowed to go access that computer. Anyway, and there's no way for me in Earth to go and say, I need to see people ID cards. I'm the command sergeant major of the building. I'm in charge of the security of the building. I can't go to a, a civilian department of the MOD and access that. However, there was a, a lady there who was in her 30s uh, behind that computer. So the first thing I did, I started hitting on that woman. She was not married. So I literally started hanging on her and I sounded like I'm getting ready to get married. <laughs> I just found my wife. And she, I just said, looked at her. I said, hey, have you seen these guys coming down to the office? And she said, oh, yeah, they have. And I said, did they fill any obligations? She said, yeah, they fill obligations plus their fingerprints. And when she said that, I said, can you can you let me access all of that information? She said, uh, I'll print a file of all of them. Oh, you must be very suave. He <laughs> and, is. And I, she printed it. He's a honeypot. Yeah. And, <laughs> and closed it and gave it to me, which actually I was able to get the full name, fingerprint, first and last name of Sabah Delaney and all those men. Mm. And I immediately took it back to the U.S. intelligence. And the U.S. intelligence at the time had a disc of former Iraqi intelligence operatives. They have bought from someone. That include names of Al-Fidayins, member of Al-Fidayin, which is Saddam suicide fighters. So they matched. So Bach came back a major in Al-Fidayin. Damn. He was an officer and he was uh, a member of the suicide squad under Saddam. So when they saw that, um, I went back and they said, look, we just want to let you know that Sabah is actually a member of Al-Fidayin. Hmm. And this is probably one of, uh, one of the top Al-Qaeda operatives right now in Fallujah, who's now in your building with 25 of his men. Shit. So for me, it's like, we lo- look like we're going to have a good gunfight inside of the building. Mm. And they said, don't touch him. Find out exactly when he leaves to go back home. Because they come from the Ambar province. They enter the building to protect that minister. And then they switch shifts with another team. And then they leave. So they... Switch shifts after about a week to two weeks. They switch shift. And I made my phone call and I said, he's leaving out of the gate. Like he's getting out. Do something. And they said, don't worry about him. Like we, we got it. I said, I don't see any of you here. Like it's just me. 
and I'm following them to the gate where they're leaving. At that point, I was not aware what the drone technologies were or anything. And I figured we have tracking devices on their vehicle or we have place tracking devices in there and maybe we, we'll get them somehow. And they left and I made the phone call and I said, hey, um, the bird is flying. The guy's going and he's leaving out of the gate, do something. And he left. And I didn't hear any much from them for about four days. Um, and the next call I got uh, was from the female agent. I met with her in the same secure location. And uh, it was just a quiet, silent moment. You just sat there and I said, so what happened? <laughs> and they said, no, nothing happened. We're just going to move in next to who else is in the building. And we need you to go to build a database of who's who in the building. And I said, well, what happened to Sabah? Is he coming back? Um, they said, he's gone. I said, what do you mean he's gone? He said, she, she said he's gone. <laughs> so what happens is they drop a team on him. He went into his villa where he parked, which is in the documentary where um, Clark saw the documentary. And he went into his villa, went inside, and they dropped a team on him. They did the raid, and they found a door that right under his bedroom. The door led to the back of a farm that had two metal containers, which was turned into a barracks for foreign fighters from outside of the country, like Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Uzbekistan. And those guys, because they sound and they look different, they can be seen above the ground during the day. So they'll come out at night, shoot the Marines. And the Marines have been through this farm multiple times, but they will never know there's a, a buried containers under the ground. So they ran an AC system to those containers, uh, ventilation system. This was the nest, basically, for a sleeping cell uh, that, for, that, that was operating in there. So the fighters were detained, and behind the farm, they found about a football field full of cachet that was uh, buried right in the farm. And this is what they use for car bombs, explosive. And that was the touchdown is the explosive that was confiscated. Um, so when she came back, she told me Sabah was gone. Um, I didn't know where he went, what happened to him. And I became officially an intelligent asset for the U.S. intelligence at that time. And my job was to build a database of all individuals who are operating within the Iraqi government and what terrorist organization they work for, um, which group they belong to, um, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, and make a list and build a database. And it went on for about three years that I operated undercover, collected on numerous of terrorists, numerous of bad actors within the Iraqi government. Uh, some of them were actually uh, former Iranian intelligence officers who spoke fluent Arabic, who entered the country with an Iraqi IDs. And they were members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, um, were operating in our government, were involved in our weapons deal between the United States and Iraq, weapons deal between us and the Kazakh Republic or other countries. They were everywhere. Um, and I went on until uh, 2007 when I got a suicide built out of the locker, one of them. Wow. And when I got that suicide built, it's because 
that hallway where this individual worked, we had John Betrayus in that hallway. We have all American generals walk through that building. We had foreign ministers come through that building. We had Donald Rumsfeld one time walk through. So that every time a U.S. delegation comes in, we had Congress members that visited Iraq, went through the building. So the, the job that I did is every time a big U.S. delegation would come into the building, I would shut all the doors to that hallway because behind these doors is the Wild West. Is I don't know what operatives are behind that door. There's thousands of them. I may know some, but I don't know what, who the rest are. And every time the Secret Service will come from the embassy and they'll send a guy and they'll send a canine and they will let me know that there is a delegation of support coming. I wouldn't know who the person would, would be um, until about five minutes from arriving. And what I'll do is I will close these big gates and I will only secure the hallway that takes them up to the minister's office because that's where they go. They go to meet with the minister. And at that point, we had the, a new minister of defense and we would close all the gates, chain them, and I will put soldiers in each side of the gate. So that gives me time in case of an attack get conducted. At the same time, when they notice this kind of a style of a protection, when they noticed I was shutting down everything, I had canines, I was soldiers on each side of the gate. That's when one of their operatives start building a suicide built inside of the building. And the, the built, uh, it was about 75% done uh, to a detonator. He brought it every single day inside of a cigarettes box. Wow. Brought small amounts and built it and built it and built it. And um, luckily I was watching this guy. I was watching every... Uh, steps of his. And at that point, I found out that he was taking uh, smoke breaks every 45 minutes for about 10 minutes. And we uh, made a rule where all the Iraqis smokes out on the balcony. And we used the excuse Americans don't like to smoke in the building. So go outside and smoke. So when I was told that by my sources that this individual is disappearing, um, I immediately went to the footage to see if he was smoking in there and I couldn't see anything of him. Um, so that's when the U S intelligence asked to step forward is to go break the locker, make sure he's not anything because he was disappearing to his locker room. And the next thing we did is I found a suicide belt full of C4 that was in the locker room that was most likely was going to be put on someone. And that would have never, um, held anything, the gates or the chains or whatever that I had would have not held anybody from trying to break in. Um, and it could have been multiple, could have been. Uh, so when that happened, everybody in the building found out who I was, evacuated the building, and everyone have left um, the building at that point, handed the suicide built. And within days, one of my sources went home to see his kids, got assassinated, got shot with two bullets in the head. And the war or the fight have went on from them versus us. And at that point, I was being looked at as a spy, a U.S. spy, and someone who has caused them damage. And they wanted to figure out to put their differences away and figure out how to get rid of me. So the amount of assassins and the amount of bounties and the amount of who can get to me first, it, it was it was uh, horrendous. That the days are numbered at that point. Then you know, shit. very, 
at that point, I thought I was going to die. Truly, I, I just changed sleeping locations. I was different places. And I was looking into who the next bomber is going to be that's going to hug me. And we're done. And my gun was loaded with hella points. Uh, I didn't care about wearing a body armor at that point. I'm like, I needed to move fast in case if I get attacked in the building. And just walking around, every single person passed by you, you look at him as the enemy, man. And these terrorist organizations have truly spent a couple months trying to figure out how they can get rid of you. You don't leave to go home. I'm inside of the building for four years inside of that building. I don't leave to go home. So they couldn't figure out how to stop you because you are any assets or someone that worked for the U.S. intelligence before, they can go compromise them by getting their families or I was someone who is not known identity. They didn't know who my family was. I don't go home to them. I'm in this building for four years in front of them, collecting on them. And they figured they had all kinds of conspiracy theories, by the way, that, that in their head. Some thought I was actually from Michigan and I was brought into this building by the U.S. intelligence. Right. Some believe there was no way this guy has a, a, an Iraqi address, that his English is so strong. He has an American accent. This might be from out of the country. He might have where, been planted. Where did you learn to speak English so good? In the military. Just... In the oh, military. Because okay. being around Americans every single day. Um, so the, the, the conspiracy theories were going all over the place. But their one, number one mission was um, is to get rid of me. And they assassinated one of my uh, intelligence sources, one of my teammates. Killed him once he left to go home. And at that point, things were very... Um, hectic, that you got the Iranians on one side trying to kill you. You got Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, the Battle Corps, the Meta Militia. You got every corner that you're being chased. It felt like you were being like a Jason Bourne movie and everybody's chasing you. And you couldn't sleep, you couldn't eat, you couldn't do anything. And at that point, the U.S. intelligence said there have been phone calls are being made. You need to leave the building. Like pretty much you are a target, you're going to die. And yeah, how did you get out of all that? That's just overwhelming. So actually, I woke up one day and I didn't know that day that I was going to be the last day in the boat. And at that point, after my teammates have died, they said they're going to go after every person that you know in that building, every person you care about in that building, they're going to kill them if they can't get to you. And that was what they turned into sending me messages one after another. And I uh, decided at that point that leaving was the best option. It wasn't to protect my life, it was to protect other people's lives. Because when I leave, the dangers leave with me. I was the target. The others were not exposed as much as I was. I am. I was the number one asset they were looking for. So I um, got to a point where I didn't want to lose more people. And I didn't want to see anybody get killed who has kids or family or anything. And, you know, the guilt that this could follow you the rest of your life. Um, with that kind of thing. Um, a lot of people think our job is cool, being an intelligent asset. You know, we're, we are like the guys that catch the ball from the town Brady. Imagine the CIA agent or any agent, intelligent agent, that's throwing this ball. You're the guy to catch the ball. You're the guy collecting the information. You're the guy exposing yourself. You're the guy who's among the enemy, operating right in there. And th there was no win-win for you at that point. You're not going to win. You're going to die or you're going to cost more people to die. And at that point, 
they couldn't kill you. You were not a normal asset that went home or had a family or a civilian. You were a soldier who was armed and had a lot of people around him. So their ways was to go after every single person that goes home. And mm-hmm. I couldn't prevent people from not going home to see their families. And uh, I made the decision, difficult decision to walk away from everything that I have known, took off my uniform, um, everything, and uh, told my uh, soldiers and everybody that worked for me that I will see you guys in five minutes, that I'm going to the DFAC, and I will be back. And that was the moment that I walked out of the MOD, and, and that was it. Did you just go to the green zone? and Yeah, I went to a U.S. base inside of the green zone. I stayed in there for for a few months until my paperwork was finished and was able to evacuate the country. Perhaps the people at the base didn't know who I was. They thought I was just another interpreter. Um, the intelligent collection team I was working with at the time um, had worked on my paperwork on getting me out of the country and uh, um, finished my paperwork within months. I left the country and uh, yeah, and left the country in 2008 in July 27th. Damn. Hey, I got two quick questions for you, Hamidi. One, that prison that you were in, did you ever look back into it? Like as the war kicked off and you were Sergeant Major, did you ever see what happened to that prison? Were those people freed by coalition forces? or No, because what happens was the U.S. forces entered. All these prisons were opened. So if people were alive, would have left that prison. Okay. And who knows where these people were from, Mm -hmm. what side of the country, where they went. Uh, how many of them were still alive at that point? But they were freed. That's what I was wondering. They were freed. The coalition yes. forces yeah, yeah. had to free these coalition prisons. Coalition forces found multiple prisons, actually, not just this one. They found some in the Iraqi intelligence headquarters back during Saddam that were underground. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned yeah. the underground prisons yeah. before. Yeah. What is it? Like literally physically underground? They had these like physically catacombs. Underground. In- yeah, physically underground. You don't see the light of the day. Fuck. And they just yeah. throw away the key and you rot there, huh? Yeah, yeah, they they just give you food uh, from a hole in your door. Fuck. Yeah, and you're right under the ground. And these people, uh, I would probably have end up there if I, my family didn't pay the money uh, they paid. Um, the people were there were punished within within trials that are worse than worse than execution. So they didn't want to kill them because they say killing them was going to stop the torture. Mm. Um, taking them down in the ground prison, uh, no haircut no medical care, mm. uh, scare the shit out of the American soldiers when they saw these people coming out. But it had to be like when they liberated the concentration sure. camps in Germany. It is. Sure it was that same. It's, like, uh, it, they, they said, uh, I don't know if you heard of the Natterdahl, the Natterdahl human, the first human being, the how end, he had long the hair. Oh, the, the Neanderthal. Yeah, yeah. I'll bet it's what yeah. they look yeah. like. Yeah. They, they long said beards they truly, the, dis- dis- the description of the people that came out of those prisons were looked like the, Neanderthals. Yeah. Neanderthal, yeah. like the, the older human, because there's no haircut, shit. no medical care, a lot of illnesses, and mm-hmm. uh, they didn't know what the hell they were. Um, and these people uh, went blind. As soon as they came off, because oh, they've never yeah. seen. They've oh never yeah, seen, uh, sure. It's probably been sun. some of them decades. Yeah, since the last time they and saw fresh air. That's just one man. That's just one. At that same location, they had a chemical pool, a chemical pool where they threw people and they dissolved. God. Mm-hmm. I have, oh. I have an, I have an uncle that was thrown into that chemical pool, and he was never, um, never had a, a tombstone. 
Nothing left, yeah. Because he tried, he was in the military back in the 80s, and he tried to conduct an attack on, on Saddam's government. Jeez. And got executed uh, and, you know, got thrown into a chemical pool, and Just nobody was ever found. Liquidated, yeah. Liquidated. So, so how many, I, I, I want to ask you a question, too. You, you mentioned through this whole experience, especially when you got in a position to lead a Sergeant Major, um, you're working with all different types of the different tribes. You know, I I don't think a lot of people understands the the tribal atmosphere of the Middle East. You know, could you, could you give us, you know, a little perspective of the, of uh, the tribal atmosphere, but also what is your point of view now that since, you know, Saddam's gone, uh, you know, people are working together. How how has the atmosphere changed tribally in Iraq? I'll, I'll tell you this: uh, Afghanistan is a little bit more tribal than we are in Iraq. We are less tribal because we have different diversities in Iraq. Um, perhaps I have a lot of soldiers of mine. They were from tribes. Their loyalty was to the country first before the tribe. Uh, that's the difference between us and Afghanistan. But I can tell you what changed, man. What changes a lot in Iraq? Um, what change is you have millions of protesters that went out to protest to say no. I mean, look, my generation and the generation before me lived 35 years under Saddam. They were policed every single day. They were scared to make one move. And to this day, to say no. yeah, yeah. To this day, this generation, that generation is scared and afraid to make a move. The generation that came out after, and during my tough time when I was fighting, getting shot out of knife history, that little kid who was born that year is the kid that stood up to the enemy today. Who said, you know what? This democracy, I'm free. I don't give a shit who you are. I'm going to live the way that I want to live. Amen. And that's the difference. That just goes to show you that the change, regardless of how bad things is. I mean, look, things are terrible in Iraq because the bad guys that I fought is now the government. They won the war. Pretty much what like the Taliban did in Afghanistan. They won mm-hmm. the war. and they're, mm-hmm. Now they're the government. But that generation that popped out. The seeds of freedom have been planted. The seeds though, of yeah. a freedom that mm-hmm. popped out was scary, man. Like mm-hmm. these guys faced life snipers a uh, couple years ago. And they started wearing fucking cooking pots on their head. Facing an armed enemy. And they were not armed. They didn't have weapons. Mm-hmm. They got rocks. And there's videos of these people fighting, man. They're fighting and and Iran is busy trying to assassinate as many activists. They assassinated over 170 activists, young kids who spoke up, and they just keep reducing. It's almost like a machine that keeps popping popcorn at mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. and they just don't know how to stop it. And that's the one of the main reasons Qasem Soleimani came to Baghdad, and then he got airstrike because yeah. he came to Baghdad to actually mm-hmm. establish a room how to put down these protests how to change the mentality of these individuals, how to make them anti-America again. Uh, this is so that they, they decided to call this, that generation the embassy generation, means they're the American agent. Well, I, oh, I think that's very generation. inspiring. And you were uh-huh. part of that to, to help, you know, grow those mm-hmm. seeds and one of those seeds. And, uh-huh. and it's kind of ironic now because worldwide, mm-hmm. you, you were seeing this because of many different issues, socially and I, politically. I, I, I could tell you that I sit at home I enjoy a nice cold beer yeah. and say, in 2004, you had one Hannity. Now you got five millions of them. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. yeah. Good and, that's, 
And that's the point, man. It's like they thought once I left Iraq, the war ended or the pressure they were under or the they thought they won. And the truth is, I thought they won, too. But after all these years, I realized I won. They didn't win. Absolutely. I I think. I think that's such an important message because, again, I know the last podcast we got into current events, stuff like that. But I seriously, it's it's like so impactful what you just said and what we're talking about right now is because it is really about it. You're only a generation away from tyranny, right? And yeah. that's the truth. And you live this and it's a living example. Yeah. And we see what's going on here in the U.S. and U.K. and, I'll, and I'll, all across and the world. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this, man. And I say it to people, people don't like war. I hate war personally. I don't like war. I'm sure a clerk doesn't like war. Uh, But war creates good fucking generations. That's why America is so great, man, because America has been at war for a long time. (laughs) It's true. World War I, World War II, and it created a better and better and better and better generation um, over the years. And makes you appreciate shit too. When you, you when you survive a war, you realize holy so shit. Wars know? are ugly, man. Wars are not fun. Wars are not, you know, a lot of people think I'm cool. I'm the terrorist whisperer. I was a CIA asset and did all this. But the damages that comes with this is is horrendous. It's bad. It's things that will chase you to the rest of your life. Mistakes that you can never forgive yourself to. However, wars create good, tough generations. It create good people. Look. We pulled out of Afghanistan. Um, We pulled out of Iraq way before that in 2012. The lesser we were at war, the more fucked up generation we have here. The more, (laughs) that's true. The more weaker, the more unappreciative. Look, if all of these guys had to go to Afghanistan and Iraq, oh shit, that if they had to go and if they said, hey man, it's Vietnam time, we got to draft your ass to the front line because America is at war. And remember, you signed on your draftment or whatever it is that you sign and you have a number. So it's time mm-hmm. for you to go. They would appreciate this country to appreciate it a lot because look at this generation. I was starting. They don't even know. I mean, yeah. I'm, I, I don't want to bring this to politics, but I'll give you an example. Look at how people now in both side of the politics of no both side of the aisle, how they're talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Mm. OK. Um, I am so glad that the Constitution is there. The law is the law. Mm-hmm. And people got to know, people got to know that regardless of how fucked up and crazy you are, we're still going to follow the law and how well things said. were. Well said. And people on both sides of the aisle are so dumb, thought that there is no Constitution, there is no law, and that all the law is going to revolve around their opinion. Yes. That yes. Well the judge. Said. The judge either has to be a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't have to be a judge who follows the law and the Constitution. They want a Republican judge or they want a Democrat judge. And that just Mm -hmm. goes to show you how much the media has divided this country and how fucked up these people and drunk they are. I'm not against Mm -hmm. the kid who went out to defend businesses. However, would I give an 18-year-old kid of mine an AR-15 and let him go out? No, I wouldn't do that. Mm. I'm sure Clark wouldn't do that to his daughter either. Nope. But... The way both sides of the aisle is viewing. One side is viewing scumbags that got shot who are arsonists and thieves and destroying businesses and being scumbags yeah. and pedophiles. Yeah. One side view them as heroes. Yeah. The other side viewing an 18 fucking year old kid who didn't know better, who didn't kill anybody special, 
or an enemy. He didn't kill Bin Laden. He wasn't Robert O'Neill when he shot Bin Laden in the face who conducted 9-11. He was just a young 18-year-old kid who tried to defend himself. And he shot three stupid idiots that we call Americans. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's who they, we have. We have plenty of Americans who are dumb as fuck. And these were some part of the majority of who are dumb. And mm. killed them. Do, do I really feel satisfied that he killed them? No. I've, I mean, I don't care what crimes they have committed. It was stupid. Those people didn't need to go burn businesses. Those people didn't need to be chasing someone with a gun who was mm-hmm. armed. That was the dumbest thing to do. And he did what he had to do. But it just goes to show you how people now are looking at this kid as the hero. Yeah. Or the people who died as heroes. S- split and the not, country, yeah. Not to know. Not to know there is 4,000 bastards died in Iraq defending their freedom. Right. There's 1,200 people died in Afghanistan defending those fucking rights, those rights yep. that they're using. All this craziness and bullshit that we're dealing mm-hmm. with. 1,200 plus 4,000 soldiers died laying their life on the ground defending all of these idiots mm-hmm. both right. sides of the aisle to have this right and I can guarantee you, they don't even know the names of the people that die for them. I know. I know a lot. Clark know a lot. They don't even know that a lot of people died to give them that right. People died to give you the right to have a business and do whatever you want. But they didn't die for you to go burn down your own cities or burn down your own thing or, or attack a U.S. Attack a business in town to get your social justice statement out. That was dumb as stupid. Well, as to to your point of the yeah. aisles, which is really disgusting if you think about it, is here the people that's supposed to represent us know the laws, you know, mm-hmm. respect the Constitution. But these are the yeah. people that said, hey, let's de- let's defund the police. Let's have the police stand down in that situation. And look, cause and effect. You had the police stand down. You had yeah. the assholes come out of, of all yeah. sides. And what do you mm-hmm. think is going to happen? So I mean, look at that. Look at it. Uh, <laughs> Did any of these politicians send their sons or daughters to these protests? Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Did anyone send it and said, go burn mm. down uh, Radio Shack? Did any one of them send their kids to do that? No. No. Their kids mm. are set going to Harvard or a good college. Yeah, and right. Exactly. For a good well, they, also, they also didn't send their sons uh, or daughters to go fight in Afghanistan to, to fight or Iraq either. Iraq. <laughs> they, don't, they just so, live in this little bubble of elites. You know? So, so. <laughs> Playing with people's emotions. That's why I don't uh, look that the at the media does. I don't look at all these people protesting, going crazy as as a as a crazy people. I don't disrespect them. I don't the, say, oh, the, I should have brainwashed by the media. Man. They're brainwashed exactly. by the media because yeah. look, when when the, when the media wanted you to go to war to Afghanistan, they found a hundred and thousand excuses that why yeah. you need to go to Afghanistan. Same with Iraq. Yeah, they stole the American they found, people. They told yeah, you, look, man, they told you, look at the. Towers. Look at all this. We got to go. Kept, they up. kept showing you videos of the towers. They kept mm-hmm. showing you. They they made you believe that Mahmoud, who sells shawarma down the road, may be Al-Qaeda. <laughs> True. That's, that's, that's all the media. That's all the media. That's, yeah. that's yeah. how they do. And they they established that and they made you go a certain way. The difference mm-hmm. is this media right now is going you putting you towards one another. It is. Now it's it's domestically pinned left versus right. Most yeah. of these idiots who goes out there. Oh, I am emotionally i know i don't expect you to be smart i don't expect you to be emotionally controlled but when you go out there and they push your emotions and they push every little button in your body in your brain and you're out there and hinge destroying shit and because i'm all about lives man any life that gets taken 
on justice is not fair, in my it's opinion. Tragic, tragic, and yeah. tragic. And but th- that that you go out there and, and destroying stuff, and look, at the people that are pushing your buttons in CNN or Fox News or any of it is, mm-hmm. the people that are pushing your button have a nice house, nice apartment, probably a million dollar apartment in New York City. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> they would appreciate you destroying their their place. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wouldn't appreciate you destroying their own place, but they want you to destroy the small pizza business down the building. Mm-hmm. It's stupid. That's why people don't use their brain to say, you know what? How am I making a social justice statement by burning down a small sandwich guy who's owned by a veteran? What does he yeah. have to do with this shit? Yeah. Well, people from that guy. neighborhood, they destroy their own communities. Hey, I mean, if crazy. you if you went and destroyed the police station. By all means, and burn it down because you have to make a statement. Hey, by all means, man, it's freedom. Do what the fuck you have to do. But if you're going down after fellow Americans who had nothing to do with it, punish them for it. Or going down to a restaurant and telling people who are sitting in the patio, uh, tell me which side you're on. I'm like, dude, it's not yeah. Nazi Germany, motherfucker. It's not Nazi yeah. Germany. Right. I'm trying what to eat doing? my food with my family. Don't try to make like, me make a... Yeah. That is not of your business. What yeah. people decide. I, look at what the media did. I have family members and friends and all that. Text me on December in 2016, December of 2020. Hey, who did you vote for? Why? <laughs> Just to see if we could stay, <laughs> stay friends or not. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It is. And I'm yeah. like, yeah. how yeah. fucked up this, this psychological warfare has gotten us. Yes. And it started to create a shit generation. A it shit is. generation. Literally. It is. Yeah. Look, I mean, millennials, a lot of these millennials went and fought in Afghanistan and fought in Iraq and, and, and did a great things. But you got, you got all these young kids now are not seeing a good example. So that's why I'm going to say this and probably no one have ever seen. We got to find the closest enemy as soon as possible because somehow wars is contributing to, to our ethical society, uh, to our ethics is contributing. Why do we need to appreciate things? Because once we get comfortable here in America, we are not going to appreciate the freedom we have. We're not going to appreciate the people that yeah. fought for us. We're going to be a bunch of idiots walking around flipping off police officers and uh, fight each other yeah. and thinking they're the enemy. Oh, they're yeah. the bad guys. Trust me. Come well, to my country in that, Iraq. That's interesting because, you know, you're yeah. right. When we're not at war with a, a foreign adversary, there's if you yeah. look back. They're always trying to put us Americans at war with each other. That's what it is. Unless exactly. we're busy fighting someone, we fight each we other. Fight each other, right? Well, it's because of media. Right. And like Hamidi said, you know, I, I as well don't blame the stupid people on the streets. They're getting their emotions toyed with. But you know who knows better? Are these media moguls? They That's know correct. exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're the ones that are at fault. These young dumb kids that get caught up because right. of social media and mainstream media. They're just driving off emotions. And when you when you tell them when you tell them that these corporations are owned by China, they don't believe it. Yeah, it's a conspiracy theory. And I'm like, dude, China Chinese companies are buying your media companies, and they're intentionally putting this information. In fact, I posted that Joe Rogan episode where he had those two dudes on there talking about that. This shit is directly coming in from China through our mainstream media and yeah. social media to get us all assed up and fighting uh-huh. with each other. Yeah. It's and, that's a point. and that's why I stopped, man, because I need to give some oxygen to those who are not thinking yeah, to use sure. their brain that to understand like, look, man, you're not my enemy, but somehow my enemy is a plane with your emotions. 
That's right. 100% playing playing with your color, playing with your anything they can find. And what gender, is gender, race, color, religion, gender, race, whatever, everything. Yeah. And that's why I feel like, you know, we can't be we can't be taking sides, man. Like this Kyle Rittenhouse, this is not yeah. a side game. Yeah, it's not. No. Why it became political? Yeah. Well, because of the media, anything. but it, it is just look like you said that look at it through the lens of the law and leave it at that. Why is yeah. it so politically charged? It's because crazy. the media makes it political. And social media too. Insane. Go ahead, go ahead. When Fox News takes your side, yeah. NBC well, is not going to be your side. It's going to be the other side. Hundred percent. Anybody that have <laughs> did anything stupid, once they make it political, they'll oh, get yeah. out. They'll, they'll, oh, yeah. they'll get all the attention they want in the world. So right. the the truth is, I believe that people need to take a step back and think about what they have. Yes. And people need to take a step back and say, you know what. Think about what we have in common with each other, too. Not this, how we're different, yeah, but how are exactly. we the same? What do we have in common? Exactly. I'm like, this kid was an 18-year-old kid who killed somebody, defended himself, mm-hmm. and got away with it. Good for him. He yeah. didn't get charged. And the people who chased him should not have chased him. Yeah. But is he a national hero? Fuck no. Mm-mm. I refuse. He, he's got a long road ahead of him, too, with the shit you know, he's got to do with. And, and, and people, you know, like, started attacking other people like you know black rifle coffee uh people started attacking black rifle coffee because they criticized the guy mm-hmm. right man i support black rifle coffee because it's a veteran owned that's the fucking reason why i support these people it's not because of their politicals not yeah. because they voted democrats or they voted republican i don't give a shit that's what I people look at now isn't that crazy yeah, yeah. i want to support oh, yeah. these guys because they're a veteran yeah that is why they're veterans and that's why i'm supporting them and you don't business. go you don't go yeah. attack people because they have different political opinions than you or you yeah. bike at them and you destroy them. Why? Like, of course, this is what China wants you to do. Yes. You're well, attacking your even, own. You're attacking posted, your own American owned company or well, I veteran posted a video. Company. I posted a video of Jack Black playing the little saxophone on the top and people got yeah. so mad. He's a liberal. Why? You? I'm like, he's funny. And I, I don't I hate care that. who he votes for. I hate that, man. I hate seeing that people yeah. uh, wants to take down people and want to put up yeah. people. And that's why I refuse. This kid yeah, was yeah. involved in a murder trial. This kid have shot three people, whatever, killed them. He has to deal with those demons. Yeah, you yeah. all know why I have dark eyes. When you kill people, it doesn't end right in there, man. Oh, yeah. it's with There you is forever, a lot man. more. Yeah. You're going to go on killing people, regardless of how bad these people are. He's got when a you, long road ahead of him, man. When you kill people, you're not going to sleep the same for the rest of your life. That's he even said in an interview he dreams about it every night. Oh, I'm like, hey, you will for the rest of your you life. You will for the rest of your yeah. life. I have mm-hmm. news for him. You uh-huh. will to the rest of your life, and they will increase as older yeah. as you get. The bottom line is I refuse to recognize the kid as a national hero. Again, there is over 6,500 bastards died for you, right. faced vicious attacks, weren't mm. getting attacked by three pedophiles. They were being uh. attacked by three crazy radicals, highly trained, wearing suicide built to defend the rights yeah. that you have and died for it. My friends, Megan McClog, who I dedicated my book to, died at age 34 in Ramadi and all her dreams, her weddings, her Christmas, all of that ended Can't right in there. It. You know, that's what people need to take a step back and say, yes, don't be an idiot. Just because these social media personalities or Fox News or the media came out and want to idolize somebody, yep. put him up to the top. Mm-hmm. I mean, they will, man. The media has a way of making someone look good. Yeah. 
and someone look bad. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, tomorrow if I run for office or do something, the media will probably make me look like the biggest uh, asshole of all time. And they'll probably get people from my fifth grade time coming out and saying <laughs> oh, how bad I was. He grabbed my butt. Fifth grade, grabbed yeah. my butt. <laughs> that's that's the thing, man. The media is an intelligent agency of some sort that operates for money Big time. and power. And they're going to fuck things up. So I stopped personally because I got involved with politics back in a few years back and I got angry and I got mad. And yeah. at this point, I realized I'm like, unfortunately, these are like the kids that you have yeah. that you can't just shoot. That These are the people yeah. that you need to explain to them. Like, look, man, I don't have a problem with you. You're not my enemy. Yeah. But you got to leave me the fuck alone because I can decide to do what I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And you can decide what you want to do in your life. Don't let somebody tells you, oh, I don't have the right to be around you because I might be putting you in danger. I'm not putting you in danger. Uh, you know, a lot of people look at me and they're like, you need to wear a mask. <laughs> and I just like I said, look, man. Motherfucker, I took fire for you for years. Yeah, yeah. I took cancer and treatments and brain tumors and shit for you. Um, so do you feel I'm putting you in danger? I'm not putting you in danger. Right. I'm putting myself in danger if I am, but yeah. leave me alone. Yeah, Don't do be, your thing. Do your do thing. Your do thing. my thing. That's it. Yeah. That's, we and need I to get it. back to that, man. And I hate it, man. I walk to places and people give you looks or they they think you're the bad guy. Come down, to, come down to Texas, man. No one will give you a look. <laughs> I mean, even Texas, man. Look no, at you're the, right. Look at Dallas. Look at all these places. Well, I live in Austin, so you There's get some, judged. Uh, you know. Austin is nice. Yeah, <laughs> Austin is nice. But even the same thing, Austin. And I mean, I just I just believe that people need to leave people alone. Stop judging. It's very self-judging. But you know what? That's why I'm like, if you own a gun. Own a gun. If you don't want to own one, don't, you don't own, have one. To own one. Well, we've gotten too used to getting in each other's businesses instead of minding our yes. own business and respecting yeah. someone that disagrees with you. Like, hey, you do your thing. I'll do my thing. We can still be cool. Well, yeah. I- and, it, and it's it's just that that's the thing, man. That's what I hated the other day that seeing. um, Seeing people, how they're taking sides and how they're going after veterans because they said something. And mm. I'm like, dude, uh, if someone says something you don't agree with, it Who doesn't cares? mean let's go destroy their company. Exactly. Well, let's go destroy them as a business. Uh, didn't they fight for you in Iraq and Afghanistan? These CM individuals yeah. fight yeah, for you exactly. overseas. So well, why attack them? Why destroy their business? Why try to do this? What for what reason? I supported these guys because they served. That's the bottom line. Yeah. I'm not going to care who they voted for. They fought for their rights. So yeah. am I. Yeah. You don't have to agree with everything right. someone says no. or does as long as they're but good people. You know, shit. But that's what I hate, man. I hate this movement of let's buy cut. Let's cancel culture. Let's do this. Let's destroy this. Well, business. It's on both sides, too. Yeah. You know, the, either way, and, they just can't agree with each other. And it's we got to take yeah. them down. And it's like, dude, how about we figure out a way to get and, back to where we were? Everybody. And, and think about it. That cancel culture and that destroying businesses and that bike cutting people. Where did it come from? Come from the media. No, hundred percent. The media created that ball. Literally created that ball and rolled it over and let everybody roll it over. So yeah. I think we are in a war within ourselves. Yes. So yeah. we need to figure out a way to stop this war. Defund the media, and, man. And stop and watching their shit, and they'll collapse. I don't watch their shit. Well, I don't. I know, yeah, I don't watch it, dude. I, I hate it. I I yeah. listen to some podcasts that cover the main topics of news I'm interested in, and that's it. I don't. I don't touch the mainstream yeah. media, and I, I can't wait till there's an alternate. I would, I'm going to leave Instagram. I, I mean, shit, at, this, shit. at this point, Pornhub has a less effects on you 
than the fucking media. Go watch Pornhub all day. No, you no, might be I, fucked. I do. You might be, I, I, oh, I you do. Might be fucked up. You might be Comedy. fucked up, but not as so fucked me. up. Now, now you're just teasing him. <laughs> but but you won't be angry. That's I can promise you. Like, well, you know what? I, I, porn and cartoons, tribe, man. At this I, point, Pornhub needs to sponsor Exactly. <laughs> you know what, Hamdi, for the Vibe Tribe, I think you had some very important points here at the end. Um, yeah. Again, it's it's about not judging people. It's, it's yeah. about, you know, respecting each other. But also, I want the Vibe Tribe to pay attention to this. This is a former CIA asset. What did he say? CIA is saying that uh, the asset's saying that, listen, China, really, go look into this. China does own the media. They're controlling the message. They either want to control the way you think and act out, or they want to keep Our, you dumb like a zombie with TikTok. Go see who owns TikTok. Um, yeah. and you could China start, does. It's, exactly. a, it's an information warfare that they're, they're definitely... It, and every, it's, every soldier of yours under 25 years old has that happen. Oh, phone. yeah. And it's and Intel. They gather your information it from it and all that exactly. stuff. So facial recognition, all your data that you put in. Hey, yep. real quick, comedy. I know we got to go, so we've kept you on for a long time. I appreciate it. Yes. Anytime. But for our listeners that want to learn more about you, you got a book out, you got a documentary, you do speaking events. What's the best way they can? So the best way is to go to my website. So I don't know. My book just came in hardcover. I don't know. Oh, if you guys nice. Oh, nice. Just in time dude. for the stockings. Oh, yeah. So Christmas this present. is actually going as a Christmas presents right now. It's uh, great. It, it goes with a movie poster signed plus hard cover. These are special orders. Reach out to me on social media. If someone wants to order a hardcover book, they're really good. And they have like a great background. They're done really well. Nice. And, nice. and um, you know, they can find me on my uh, Instagram, uh, the terrorist whisper. Um, I'm the only one out there. So, uh, you know, with the 26,000 followers, the others are all fake. Um, and um, they're all like fake Hamity, uh, probably darker overseas and around or somewhere. Um, if but, people want to see your documentary, where do they go? Amazon.com. Just look Amazon, up the terrorist whisper. Absolutely. And there's a link in my bio and my Instagram as well. And yeah, uh, this is where I am. And anybody uh, needs to reach out to me, I'll be happy to answer Awesome. That's awesome. Hamidi, thank you so much. Uh, I had a much yes. better time this time around, too. It was a lot more fun. Yeah, man. Uh, <laughs> congratulations on uh, converting to Islam and stopping drinking. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, have a very blessed Thanksgiving, sir. And too, and, guys. and great holidays. Always good catching up with you again. Um, and we really do appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. Awesome. Love you, brother. Thank you, man. Vibe Tribe, listen to this man. He's a wise man. Hopefully he took some lessons away. Have a great week. We will see you next week. Thanks, Vibe Tribe.